Hello, thanks for stopping by Liberty Sessions, where we unpack one woman's entrepreneurial journey to help another woman launch her own. I'm your host, Netta Jones. Please join me as we start liberating dreams one episode at a time. Liberty listeners, here we are again for another episode of Liberty Sessions, and this time with the awesome Anne Sage of Anne Sage All Things blog, um, the stylist, the founder of Light Lab. She's going to get into so many things with you. Anne, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So why don't you just start off by telling us, because there's so many platforms that you are um, a part of, and even though a lot of them are connected to Anne Sage. I want to pull them all apart for our listeners. So just tell us like all the things that are okay. Anne Sage. All the things. Yeah. Let's see. So we are sitting right now in Light Lab, which is Which a, is insane. Thank you. It is a 2,000 square foot creative studio that I gutted and renovated with my business partners, Caroline and Jaden Lee, who are photographers that I work a lot with. And we reached a point where we had been working from home, all of us, for years and years, and we wanted a physical space in which to do our work. So we found this space and had a vision and now it is a um you know creative studio photo studio event space we rent it to other people for their own use we use it for our stuff and it's really great just to have a physical home base so i run that okay i also have a blog and all the related social media platforms that go along with that so instagram pinterest you know the the whole gamut um and the way that the blog supports me is maybe one in five posts is sponsored advertorial. So I collaborate with brands and companies to create original content that incorporates their products and services in my own aesthetic and voice. And for that, I take a lot of photos, I style a lot of photos, I write, I edit, I, you know, work with them to come up with the strategy behind a post. So I wear a lot of different hats, even just under the umbrella of the blog. And then also, I do copywriting for, for companies. I wrote a book about interior design and how it, um, you know, interrelates with personal growth. And of course, Netta, you were in that book, so you know all about it. Um, and let's see, I style for, for companies just, you know, outside of the purview of my social media platforms. And then I've also this year been doing a lot more kind of personal creative writing, so creative nonfiction essays and working towards writing a memoir. Wow. Is that something you've been wanting to do for a while? It's something that has been riding on my shoulders for a while. Uh -huh. And I've reached a point where it's, it's ready to be told. And I'm 
kind of sort of maybe ready to sit down and tell it. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine, actually. Uh, we actually interviewed two different women who had written memoirs um, for our podcast. And one um, actually was a woman who spent time in a harem. So you can imagine what oh, it must have been some like. Girls. Jillian Lauren. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that book she's, so much. She's great. And it, so you can only imagine what that must have been like in yes. terms of the same angst. I'm not saying you lived in a harem, but the same angst in like, oh, I'm putting out my story. Yeah. How will people respond to this? What will it change for me? Totally. Um, and and I think for me, the the duality of having a story that A, I think is really interesting, but even more importantly, B could be really valuable to yeah. other people because I know what particular books and memoirs have been to me when I've been going through challenging times. So if even one reader can can read my story and get something out of it, then everything I've been through will have served a purpose other than you know my own personal growth. Um, so there's the, almost like a call of duty. But then... Yep, I get that. The fear of going through that process, I mean, writing is hard enough to begin with, but writing something deeply personal that includes other people, yeah, it's no joke. Yeah, and that's exactly how you should be handling it. I mean, all those things are responsible and respectful um, ways that you should be feeling toward it. What's interesting is you said, if I can affect one person, that wasn't the exact word you used, but... Um, you have a platform where you can affect a lot of people. Right. And so that almost makes the responsibility piece of it a little bit heavier, yeah. a little bit weightier. For so sure. I get that. Having said that, we're looking forward to, to hearing you it. You heard so, it here first, yes, folks. We'll interview you again when the memoir comes out. So you and I met a million years ago. We actually mm -hmm. met back in 2011 when you were... Uh, a panelist. Do you remember this? Uh, yes. At LTD Live. Yes. I was still living in San Francisco. You were still living in San Francisco and you were part of a startup um, content company. Uh, I'll let you tell that story a little bit. And a blogger. You were also still blogging. It was not Ann Sage. It was the City Sa Sage. The City Sage. Yeah. And I, like a year into being the City Sage, I started to hate the name so much, but I held on to it. Yeah. And then finally it was like, no. No, I'm just going to be AnnSage.com. Anne <laughs> well, tell, so tell us those two parts, because I want our uh, listeners to know kind of where you came from, um, because later we're going to ask questions about kind of how you can help them. But having some context or Absolutely. some background is helpful. Yeah. So in 2008, I had moved to New York City and was working at a small ad agency. I had actually moved there in 06 after graduating with an English degree at Stanford and then went to New York to do a master's in interior design. And the program that I was in just wasn't the right fit. I think I was ready not to be a student finally. Yeah. So I went out and got a job at a boutique scale ad agency where I was doing consumer strategy for brands like John Varvatos and Method and Gaim. So really in the lifestyle space. But Simultaneous to that, I desperately wanted to work at Martha Stewart Living and had since I was maybe 15 years old. Oh, wow. So I was submitting resumes, you know, every job they posted. It didn't matter if I thought I was a fit. I just sent in a resume and probably they're somewhere out in the ether still. But of course, with print publishing, if you don't have an in, a foot in the door, you're totally out of luck. So in 2008, a mentor said to me, 
why not start a blog? It's something that people are kind of doing right now. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, it'll be a running resume. It'll be a creative outlet for you. And I sat on the idea for a while and, and didn't do anything. And then a frenemy from college started a blog. And my first post went up the next day. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> She's not going to start a blog and leave me in the dust. So really, you know, it, it was petty jealousy that's whatever. Started whatever the it blog. takes. <laughs> that was the judge. final kick yeah. in the pants. But so, you know, this was in 08 when blogs were the only lifestyle content on the internet. They were very much in their nascent. There was no Pinterest. There was no Insta Instagram. Um, and... Nobody got paid for blogging, certainly. And the community really was what drove us all, just that we were meeting new people who shared the same interests, and we all were so supportive of each other. We would go around and make sure we commented on everyone's blog every day. Uh, and it, it was just really, really fun. And about two years into blogging, by this time I had moved to San Francisco from New York, um, I felt like I was just regurgitating other people's content. I would take other people's images, put them on my blog, and put my own verbal spin on them, and it started to feel less than fulfilling. So I started, I joined up with another couple bloggers, and we started an online magazine called Rue Magazine. And Rue still exists, and my co-founder, Crystal, does a beautiful job with it. Um, I was there for about two years until, for me, it started to feel really unsustainable in terms of just keeping up the pace, keeping up the financial demands of it. And also my marriage was kind of crumbling and it, it was all very much interrelated and very messy and, you know, available in my memoir when it comes out. <laughs> um, but so I left after two years. However, throughout doing the magazine, we all kept up our blogs because there, for me, especially there was this feeling that well, the reason I'm able to have this magazine in the first place is because I'm a blogger. And if I give up the blog and sure. just do the magazine, then... If this afforded me this, yeah, I should the, keep the it Yeah, the foundation is totally gone. So, um, so when I left the magazine and moved down here to L.A. and kind of licked my wounds for a little while, I kept the blog going, and so now it's my main thing. I can remember sitting in the driveway of my car when you first arrived. Yeah, do you remember this? I do. And we were talking about, we were kind of going through the wound licking and yeah. just, uh, I was just <laughs> listening. And it's fun to see what's come Thank in you. these last few years, both in the change of Anne Sage, like oh, there's something really powerful in owning your name, mm -hmm. your whole name. And then the book, your book, which we'll talk about, and Light Lab, and so much that has come since yeah. then, including um, a marriage, yeah. which is exciting. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you had, you had mentioned with the blog when it started that people weren't making money. It was really a community. When did that shift, and when did you start to say, wait, there's something viable here that I can actually build a career on? Um, that's a great question. And I think that it sort of came in two phases. The first phase was, oh, there's something viable here that I could build a career on and having that realization. But then much later, actually having that realization come to fruition. There was a definite lag time between, I should be making money for doing this and, 
oh, I'm making money for doing this. Right. Was that because of you or was that because the it industry was, caught up? It was really the industry catching up. And I think those early bloggers, all of us doing the hard work of staying committed and maintaining a vision bigger than whatever financial circumstances were going on, um, and also doing the serious hard work of educating brands on the value of partnering with us in a paid capacity, which we still have to do. Um, because, of course, anyone wants to get something for free or cheap if they can. Sure. I mean, I, I don't judge for that. But um, a lot of really clear boundaries had to be drawn once we realized how valuable our audiences and the engagement that we had fostered were to then be able to stand up for ourselves and use our voices, own those voices, and say, no, if we're putting our time and our energy and our social capital into creating and publishing this content, we're not going to do it for free. Was there a collective conversation that was formal or informal and all of you gathering whether, again, just... You know, in some capacity and saying, wait a minute, guys, let's all say no or let's all demand something else. That's that's a good question. Um, I think there's a few different pieces that have played a role. Definitely. Friend groups who are comfortable talking about these things with each other are really important because, of course, money is such a taboo subject. Sure. Money for women is even more taboo. Sure. Um, and definitely as things become more competitive, there will be cliques within the industry and, it, and they don't want anyone outside of the clique finding out what I'm getting paid, how much I'm charging, et cetera, et cetera. But having safe spaces where those conversations can take place definitely is valuable. Um, but then also something that's happened in the past couple years is management agencies. Yep. And I got a manager I signed on just about a year ago. And it's been so incredibly supportive of maintaining a sustainable living because I'm able to focus now on creating the content and she worries about the contracts, keeping my calendar organized, the back and forth with brands, sure. et cetera. And even continues that educating of the brand. Exactly. You know, or educating yeah. the brand rather. Yeah. Like, and I think, you know, standard for, practices. for a company, if they approach me and then I say, well, I work with a manager on all of my sponsored content, here she is, there's a legitimacy that that of course. brings that doesn't, I think, take place if you're just yourself. For those listening, um, when do you think it's appropriate to get a manager? At, at what level of kind of blog reader should you be hitting or Instagram following? When do you think it's good to say, you know what, it's time to get a manager? Or perhaps it's a little premature for you to be thinking about that. Um, I would say it's time to talk to prospective managers if you've reached a point where you feel where your content is being compromised because of all the administrative stuff that you're doing as a result of creating that con content. So for me, um, you know, I was writing so many emails and handling so many back and forths mm -hmm. and chasing people down for invoices. And as a result, 
I wasn't able to be creative when I needed to. So if, you know, if companies are approaching you and you're getting stretched so thin that the quality of your work is suffering, then talk to a manager. Um, I don't think I could, you know, there's no number that I could give you that says, oh, you should have a manager when you have 15,000 Instagram followers. Like that, that's just not the case because brands are very aware that there's value in influencers who have all sizes of followings. Sure. And what's the engagement on exactly. the, in that size? And I would say I love that answer because then it puts the onus on what's your activity versus what's your following. Mm-hmm. Like, And you could have a giant following and it's your side gig. Yeah. Right? It, it, you're not doing it to maintain uh, or to make a living. Absolutely. And so therefore you don't have brands clamoring to work with you. That's not something that you've opened the door for. Yeah. Um, okay, so... Going from non-blogging or from blogging for no money, rather, to blogging, and thank you for sharing with us that it's not every post. I think it's helpful for people to realize what that might look like. Um, Tell us on the Instagram side, I'm going to get more specific on, there's this new term that's not new to you, but is new to many of us um, in the last few years called influencer. And there's a whole Mm -hmm. business that's built around it, hence you having a manager or an agent. Tell us what the opportunities, kind of the range of opportunities or the spectrum of opportunity for someone who is an influencer and is perhaps thinking that that's an avenue of growth for them. Sure. Um, Well, I'll just speak from my own experience first. Um, Please do. the, The space we're sitting in was built entirely on my business partner and I having an engaged audience. And what I mean by that is the stools that we're sitting on, the kitchen shelves, we're looking at the appliances that our kombucha were chilled in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, those, by the way, for that. Those health aid, it's awesome. Um, all of that wasn't paid. Um, <laughs> and it's women-owned too, so we should get. Uh, yes. Um, all of that product was brought into the space on trade. We received product and then had a commensurate value of coverage that we provided on our social channels in exchange for that product. So we were, in a sense, paid for talking about our new KitchenAid appliances, sharing our West Elm chairs, what have you. and so we were able to create something. We we didn't put any we didn't get any outside funding. Wow. We did put our own personal savings into the labor of the build out and did a lot of the work ourselves too. But anything that you can feel and touch was on trade. So that really puts um, it, it gives real meaning to social capital. Absolutely, I mean, literally leveraging that. Yeah, the two yeah, of you. for sure. And we we went into every interaction with a really clear picture of what is the dollar value of an Instagram on our feed. What is the dollar value of a dedicated blog post featuring this cabinetry? So that when we approached prospective brand partners, we were able to say, here's what we can offer. Here's our value. It's very clearly outlined. There's no kind of gray area or wiggle room. And that made the conversation feel very transactional, which 
was to everyone's benefit sure. because then everyone's really clear on what are the expectations up front. Did you have to, uh, in seeking out the two partners that would participate in this, did you look for or was it intentional that both of you or the three of you rather brought the same uh social capital to the table? Like, was that ever a part of the discussion or was it a little yin-yang and we're offering something different to this collaboration? You know, it, it wasn't even something that we um, really thought about. It just came together so naturally and organically. And you had worked with them. And I've yeah. known them for, they're my, some of my oldest friends. Um, Jaden doesn't really have a following it's Caroline and myself and so it was our coverage that we were putting up on the table but Jaden's literal blood sweat and tears are you know in the tiling on the floor sure. <laughs> we're sitting on thank yeah. you for those thank Jayden. you Jaden yeah um but it, it really was more that we both saw the value saw the opportunity and decided to do something with it I, I think a lot of people come into different partnerships, and we've talked about it right here on this podcast, bringing different things to the table. And sometimes you're hoping for a little bit of the tension where there's you're, you're equal mm -hmm. and there's a level of um, tension that, you're, that you want to be there. And sometimes it's wildly different. Like yeah. what the, I think Jaden is a perfect example. Like it didn't matter. The, the three of you collectively saw the value in what each could bring to the table. Absolutely. And respected it. So mm -hmm. kind of lived up to their, their ability or their potential. Um, so I want to switch things a little bit. You have been living in this very digital space yes. and you have been through blogging and styling being an influencer, even in Light Lab, a lot of the space, although it's a physical space, a lot of the people who rent the space and then you yourself are creating digital content. What was it like for you to create a hard copy book, an old school, working with a publisher, traveling around, taking pictures, compiling content to then be distributed in this somewhat antiquated way um, yeah. relative to what you knew to be the case. Well, it was torture. <laughs> okay, tell Which us Which is probably one of the reasons why the memoir, you know, is slow yeah. to come to life. Um, and I, I'll preface it by saying the year I wrote the book was also the year I decided to go cold turkey off antidepressants after 10 years. So there was a lot going on behind the scenes that made writing a book even harder. Um, the things about it that were challenging for me as relates to being in the digital space is, you know, I'll take some photos, I'll write a few paragraphs, I'll put them on the blog, boom, an afternoon's worth of work. To sustain the level of commitment that is required to write a book over, for me, it was three years, a three-year process. Mm -hmm. That was unprecedented for me. Um, especially, you know, like, yeah, in college I wrote a thesis and that took a good six, nine months. But in college I didn't have a smartphone and the attention span of a gnat, mm -hmm. and now I do. Um, so that was really hard. Some of the tools that I tapped into to get me through were similar, I think, to what will get me through writing the memoir, which is this bigger picture, this bigger vision. And in the case of, of Sage Living, the book, it was 
these people have opened their homes to me. I owe it to them to tell their story to the utmost best of my ability. It really was um, thinking about other people and getting myself out of my own head <laughs> that got me through. And the book is rather intimate in that it's not just a look at sort of residential spaces, but actually I'll let you tell yeah. a little bit more. I mean, it's it's very intimate in how people use and live and enjoy and play totally. in these private spaces. Yeah, so the book came to life from my own experience of leaving San Francisco, moving here to L.A., and living in a an empty apartment for six months. And the apartment stayed empty because I just couldn't bring myself to to make any decisions about what to put into it. And I had this realization that, oh, my, my, my home is literally the mirror of what's going on inside of me. I do not trust myself one iota to make any decision, even at the level of which wooden spoon to buy at, at Bed Bath & Beyond. Mm. And then I kind of flipped it and thought, all right, well, couldn't we then implement decisions in our home as laying the groundwork for manifesting what we do want in our life. And then I thought, well, probably there are people out there doing this already, whether they know it or not. Sure. So I used the network that I had built through blogging and doing the magazine to put feelers out and sure enough, find tons of examples of people doing this. And the truth is that we all do it because I've since come to believe that how we do one thing is how we do everything. So if our interior life is a mess, our home is probably a disaster too. Um, but the homes in the book, of course, are, are little more obvious examples of, of this phenomenon. Did you feel like um, all the blood, sweat, and tears and, and the emotional um, season that you were going through was worth it in the end when you had this it was a beautiful book Thank and I you. remember being at the launch one of the launches um, at West Elm and it was such a celebration of a lot of a lot of hard work and a lot of really intentional gathering of this content did it feel like that or was it a little day after Christmas be honest. So the book launch at West Elm definitely felt really momentous. My mom flew out from Toronto to surprise me and walked out from the back room. I was just awestruck in her ability to keep a secret and and was surrounded by so many friends and loved ones and felt really seen and acknowledged. Um, so that was very, very special for sure. The book itself, it wasn't a day after Christmas thing, but again, because books happen in stages, mm -hmm. you know, first you submit your manuscript and then you submit your edits and then you get a galley. And so there, it's like these little baby steps. And so there was never any kind of anticlimactic experience because everything happened so slowly. And then of course it came out. And I would say the one thing that I've talked about with other people who have written books that we've all kind of experienced is by the time it comes out, everyone else is really, really excited because it's new for them. Sure. But you've been looking at this stuff for a year. And so I almost felt like I was a little bit ready to move on by the time it came out. Yeah, <laughs> Which there is actually something good about that in that the 
the life, that season of promoting it is so fast. Yeah. It goes so quickly. So all that work, even though it's a hard copy with a very long shelf life, yeah. it's, it's like that of promoting something that has a fleeting life totally. in that you really have to move quickly to get it promoted. Mm -hmm. What was that like, promoting it and telling people, hey, because you have come from a space where you're telling the world about other people's stuff. What that, was it like to have a thing yourself? That was really hard for me, actually, because I'm, I'm someone where self-promotion doesn't come easily to me to begin with. I feel guilty putting a blog post up on Twitter and talking about myself when I should be talking about, you know, the world is falling apart. Sure. So to, to be repeating over and over, hey, here's this book. Hey, here's this book. That definitely was challenging for me. And I don't think I did it as well as colleagues I've seen who have done it really, really well. But I'm lucky in that I put some of my um, budget into having a publicist basically paid her to do what I couldn't do for myself. Sure. Well, and I just think that's smart. That's a mistake that I know lots of people have looked back on and said, why didn't I do that? Why was yeah. I trying to hang on to every penny when this was going to afford me so, so many opportunities to get in front of people that I wouldn't yeah. have been able to get in front for of? For sure, for sure. Would you do it again? Yes. Okay. Because... I'm really happy with where I'm at right now and I see everything that's occurred in my life as integral to where I'm at right now. What would you do differently on the bookend? And then I want to go back yeah. to So else. on the bookend, what would I do differently? Um, I definitely since then have gotten better at setting internal deadlines and meeting them for myself my time management has improved in the past couple of years and it wasn't so great when I was doing the book. And so I was always up against a lot of really uncomfortable deadlines and causing myself self-stress and anxiety unnecessarily. So I would for sure do that differently. Um, and I would maybe be a little more open about the process of writing it while I was writing it because I think a lot of my audience was surprised when it came out Oh, interesting. Like, oh, she's yeah. been blogging yeah. and doing this other stuff. And, and, and now. again, that goes back to how it's it's a bit hard for me to talk about what's going on in my life um, and and talk about me. Sure. Um, and so I held back that, oh, my gosh, I've got a book contract. I'm writing a book. This is amazing. I didn't really share a lot of that. And, and I could have done a lot more of that promotional chatter leading up to the launch of and the book. And bringing people along the way, which yeah. they would have come. Oh, yeah. That's the thing. It's, I never am disappointed by the reception that, that any kind of sharing receives. People are always fascinated, interested, supportive. That's amazing. It's, it's all the conversations in my own head that keep my lips sealed. Um, I think that when the memoir comes out, we expect to be hearing from you along the way <laughs> for so many reasons. Okay, I want to go back to something we talked about early on when you were talking about um, going from blogging to then working with other bloggers to create uh, Rue magazine. And it's less about Rue and more about when you, and that was a digital magazine, just mm -hmm. to be clear, for the, and still is, for those who, who don't know. When you look at the landscape of blogging, creating a digital magazine, 
writing a physical book that somebody can touch and hold, uh, social media. You've been creating content using a lot of different mediums. Mm -hmm. What has emerged your favorite medium? Why don't you answer that? Okay. Um, well, the one I'm addicted to the most is definitely Instagram. Okay. And I think it's because I'm a perfectionist. And so I really, really love the ability Instagram affords me to craft that perfect image as part of a perfect feed. And sometimes I'll just scroll through my feed and be like, yeah, it's really coming <laughs> together, guys. It's looking good. Um, and for that reason, Instagram stories and Snapchat are really hard for me because they are spontaneous and they are imperfect and I'm just not interested in that. Yeah. Uh, even though I see value in them for other reasons. Um, you know, I keep my blog going. I don't always love that it's still going. Hmm. Um, and that's because blog readership is down because people's attention spans are just spread a lot more thinly. And so I almost feel like, well, what's the point? There's not as many people reading as used to be. But I keep going at it because at this point, it's almost like an entity unto itself and I don't sure. want to let it down. Well, and I would think that while from a... Um, from a global perspective, you can say blogging, the numbers have gone down. But from an individual, who are those people that are loyal yeah. to Anne Sage? They're still coming. Sure. And they're still looking for your opinion and your ideas and right. your style and your voice. Right. And I think that blogging is an opportunity to tell the bigger story. Sure. You know, Instagram is the one snapshot. The blog is going a little deeper. Um seeing things from a variety of angles, both literally and figuratively speaking. If you could, and I'm not saying you're going to, but if you could shut down, this is from a, a kind of a business, a financial mm -hmm. decision point of view. If you could shut down the blog, could you sustain yourself as a content creator through Instagram? No. Okay. So you need both and. Yeah. Okay. So that's helpful. So now we're going to take all that awesome information about kind of your career and what you've been able to cobble, cobble up and the history, sort of the, um, the time that has spanned and what you've learned in that time to answer some more expert questions, you know, mm -hmm. from an expert voice for our audience. So I can imagine that there are people who are listening who are thinking is there even space for bloggers to begin I mean I have to wonder the same thing I discourage people from starting a blog in this day and age definitely I I never say don't but I for sure let people know that it's really really hard to grow a blog readership now and then there are other avenues for sharing whatever you might like to share than having a blog that three people read. I think that it's probably a lot easier to start an Instagram account that functions like a blog than to start, you know, an old school sure. blog. Sure. I, I happen to agree, and I don't have near the expertise that you do in that area. Would you... But I, I think it's really important to note, today... As in 10 years ago, 
I would never stop someone from taking up a pursuit that fulfills a passion for them. And at the end of the day, all of this has to come from a place of passion because if you're starting something solely to make money, it's not going to be fulfilling. It's going to be transparent that you're doing it for money. Yeah. So if you want to start a blog because you've got something to say and you need a place to say it, then do it and don't worry about who's reading it. Yeah, yeah. Do do it for yourself versus I can actually. I've looked. I've been watching people who've created a career out of this, and therefore, so can I. So, do you think it's because the landscape, the blogging landscape, has changed? And so, you're saying, look, unless it's just a passion pursuit, don't do it. It's too hard to make money that way right now. Or do you think it's because there's so many people and so many voices out there that it would be hard to cut through that clutter to ever get to a place where you could even look at a, that being financially viable? Well, I see, I see those things as being one and the same. The okay. landscape has changed to a point where it is very, very crowded and cutting through the clutter is incredibly difficult. So let me ask it this way. Is the, landca is the landscape cluttered because brands are looking at all the bloggers that are out there and saying, my, my money is too diluted. There's, there's too many things that we, can, um, that we can do via Instagram or whatever. Or is it, um, I guess, which came first, the chicken or the mm -hmm. egg? Is it because there's so many people out there that, that from a money-making point of view, brand said, this doesn't make as much sense anymore, so you can't have every single blog necessarily be um, a paid-for post? Or is it because people aren't doing it because brands got savvy to other platforms like an Instagram? Well, I think what it really has to do with is, is that readership on actual websites is down. Okay. And that's why I wouldn't tell someone that their first choice should be starting a blog because it's just that much harder to grow a, a quote-unquote viable audience that you can market on a traditional blog. So the Instagram audience is huge too. How yeah. is that different? Is it is it quicker and it takes less time and therefore it's not the same level of commitment? Like... There are millions and millions of Instagrammers, so why might that be the avenue they should choose over blogging? I happen to agree, but yeah. I don't know if I myself know the why. Well, the thing is, is I wouldn't tell someone to start an Instagram okay. feed to hope for, to make money. To make money. Like, I would never tell someone to get into this industry because they want to make money doing it. I would tell someone, go work for a company as a social media manager yeah. and make money do it, doing it. But the only reason I would tell someone to start an Instagram feed or to start a blog or to start anything in the creative space is because they have a burning message to tell. And no matter what happens, no matter how many people are listening and reading, no matter how much they're getting paid for it, they're going to tell that message because that's what's going to get them through in the valley times when it feels like no one is listening, when it feels like they're running out of money. Um, 
It's, it's, you have to have a vision that, that takes you above whatever circumstances come your way. So would it be something that somebody could build a platform around? You know how it used to be, and go, going back to your book, your platform is going to inform how many book sales or how many widget sales, whatever that might be. Is it maybe it's kind of come full circle and maybe you really need to create the thing first and then be promoting it versus just creating the platform and then hope you can sell the widget on the back end? Does that make sense? Sort of, but I think that 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 devalues all the hard work that goes into creating a platform because, you know, I had a blog for five years and created a heck of a lot of content before I was able to then generate a book contract out of that. So I think that there always has to be some kind of product, whether it's a digital image or a book you hold in your hand in order for there to be a platform like a, a platform doesn't exist in a foundationless sure. world. Sure. So, okay. It does that was that answering your does. question? It does. What I like about your answers, there's a lot of like about your answers, <laughs> but what I like is I feel like it's telling the people who are looking to go into that space the truth. Because there's still so many whether it's blogging conferences and not to diminish some of the other things that the, those conferences are able to do, but that are still saying in because they want to sustain the industry that this is still viable. Mm. And what I hear you saying is perhaps not. Yeah, I mean there's a reason why I'm taking creative writing classes and putting more thought and energy into things other than my online platforms because, I mean, I don't mean to sound doomsday, but but I feel like we're in a bubble right now. And it almost feels too good to be true. Yeah. And things that are too good to be true usually are, and bubbles burst. And so I'm looking, what's my next step? Yeah. And also, I don't want to be Instagramming about shoes when I'm 45. Yeah. Not that there's anything Not that wrong there's with anything being wrong, wrong with being with 45. That. And shoes are amazing <laughs> yeah. no matter what age you are. That's right. That's right. Okay. So we have gone over the millions of things that you do. And I just can only imagine in any one given day, like how many hats you're wearing, mm-hmm. whether it's managing the studio. You talked about being a landlord, you know, renting out the studio to people. Um, creating content, whether it's for your Instagram that's not being paid for or for somebody else or for the blog that is being paid for. How do you sort of manage all of that? Well, I don't always manage it very well. On the days that I do manage, it's because I'm using tools that are available to me. Um, I recently hired a virtual assistant and highly recommend that we it took us a little while to get a workflow going because I'm a control freak and delegating isn't my strong suit but once we were able to identify what I you know what I could offload onto her the bulk of it is is emails um, because I was always behind on emails and always felt flaky for it and unprofessional uh but simply you know there's only so many hours in the day and now she manages my inbox which is phenomenal. And then also having a manager manage all of my 
paid content and all the negotiations and invoicing and everything for that part of my um, my living is really handy as well. So I guess I'm saying delegate and and create a support network. Also, I've gotten a lot better at using my calendar and managing it rather than feeling like it was managing me. And something that I try to do is block off days according to the type of activity that I'm doing I on love those days. This. I, I can tell I'm getting excited yeah. already. Yeah. So ahead. for example, I might carve out a Thursday and Friday morning for meetings around town. So I know Thursday, Friday morning, I'm around, I'm out, I'm not at my desk. I might carve out all of Tuesday for shooting Instagram and blog content. And then I know that I have Monday and Wednesday to just be at the computer, editing, writing, emailing, etc. cetera. Um, and obviously for everyone, the picture looks different, but sure. just kind of siloing what the what the different hats are so you know when to put one on and to take another off. Are there any um, kind of third party, aside from the people that you've hired, third party platforms or tools or resources that you've used, whether it's for banking or for organizing uh, projects, anything? You know, I've tried them and they've never stuck. I'm someone where the simpler I keep it, the better. Yeah. So I've got my notebook, I've got my inbox, and that's kind of it. Yeah. I unfortunately, for anybody on my team, am the same way. So it's it's hard. It is it's as good as your ability to use it. Yeah. Um, and I think there are lots of things that are actually really great. But if that's not your work style, it, it either takes a minute. Yeah. I, I don't want to cop out so early. It takes a minute, or it. Um, or you just have to say that's not for me and I need to be able to develop these old school ways in yeah. a way that I can delegate in a way that I can pass off that information. Yeah. And, and granted, if I were managing a bigger team, it would be totally different. I'm, I'm lucky in that it's just me and my manager and my, my assistant. And something that I've always had a hard time with, and maybe this goes back to the self-promotion piece, but I've never been a great boss because I have a hard time seeing myself at the top of a hierarchy. Hmm. I'm comfortable working with a manager and I'm comfortable working with Katie who does all my emails because I feel like it's a it's an even playing field. I don't like telling people what to do, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Would there be a... Um could you imagine a situation in where you were like, well, if I had to get comfortable with that to grow my business, I could. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Okay. So it's not like yeah. I don't want that. It's, it's not just that I'm I don't want it. it. And it, I've done so much personal work to, to know that growth happens in a space of discomfort. Yeah. Um, that's just not a space I've ever chosen to step into. <laughs> so, okay. So this leads me to working with people in a slightly different way, collaboration. Yes. So you talked about the collaborations that brought together this physical space. But again, our listeners have heard this word. It feels like it's everybody's collaborating to the extent that I don't even know if they're using the word right. Mm. It's like, no, that's just a paid for post. I'm not <laughs> sure that's a collaboration. So what are some ways in which you think um, people should really look at ways they can collaborate and let's go back to the content creation piece. Maybe I do have a widget, whatever that is, and, and that could be a service too. And, but I don't have a giant 
blog or social media following. And so how do I find or capitalize on somebody who has that space in a way that honors both of us, like what I have to offer? Just whatever collaborations sure. you can, you've can, you seen that have worked for you or that yeah. you know, you've just watched happen well. Well, so I think, again, it always goes back to making sure that the vision is in line first. For example, I recently collaborated with someone on a bedroom makeover and she's got a huge following and, and a very loyal following. And the value for me, of course, was in getting in front of her audience. But even before that, it was that I liked her as a person and it would be really fun to work on her bedroom together. Sure. So we always had that from the beginning um, the creative piece, the the goal was very clear from a, a product point of view. And then we were able to figure out, all right, well, what are the other things coming into play? And, and that's where having a really clear value proposition on both sides is important. So, you know, she's got the audience, but I've got interior design services. And like the example I mentioned with Light Lab and the build-out, yeah. Caroline and I went into any conversation with an actual rates sheet that we could provide and say, one Instagram is the equivalent to $1,250. Right. And right. so we expect that much product in exchange. So getting really clear on boundaries, getting really clear on value, so important. So, um, again, I love, thank you for giving some real, even if that number varies slightly, but just some something we can kind of sink our sure. teeth into. So those listening who might have 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 followers, is there sort of a, a formula that you could advise they kind of pour their numbers into before they start working with a brand? Is there any advice for where do you begin coming up with that? what that value is. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I know that my rates are set based on my manager and all the other talent she has on her roster. And I've heard it said $100 for every 10,000 Instagram followers. That's what I've read. I doubt that lots of people stick to that because yeah. there's so many other variables that sure. come into play. I think the most important thing, though, as a content creator on the creator side of things is to remember that brands will take whatever they can get and they'll take advantage, not because they're mean or evil, but because they have reports to deliver to their shareholders. And so it's really, really important as a creator to recognize my time is valuable, my resources are valuable, me putting a brand's name in front of my audience, that's social capital, that's real. Sure. You know, it is, it's sure. real. Um, and so going into conversations, feeling really secure in that, or at least pretending you feel really secure sure. in it, that's so important. And I think it's even looking beyond as someone who, so I don't have the following on a social 
um, platform. But somebody like me, who's perhaps served uh, an audience in a different way, has a smaller following, but a super loyal following. Totally. What can that person kind of convert their audience to if you are more likely to get your audience member to because they're so loyal to say I'll buy that fan yeah then there's something there's something there from a brand sure. point of view and there's there's real value there so I appreciate the hundred dollar per ten thousand is kind of what word on the street says but then what are all these other things right. that distinguish you from brands around you uh, any collaborations that you're like if it smells funny, it is not a good situation or, you know, an example you can give of don't go into collaborations that are off kilter or uneven in any way. Um, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if it feels off from the beginning, it'll probably end up feeling off. And I don't just mean that for, for you and for the brand, but I mean for an audience as well. Like audiences can smell a bad energy, and so if I go into a brand collaboration and I'm like, oh, I don't know if the fit is right here. Sure. This isn't really a brand I would use in real life. Um, it'll feel forced while I'm creating the product and it'll feel forced who, for whoever I deliver it to. So that's something to keep in mind. Another of my favorite little sayings is hesitation is a no. Like if it's giving you pause, mm -hmm. there's a reason whether you can put your finger on it at, at the time or not. That's a good one in general. Yeah. Hesitation is a no. Um, another thing I would say about collaborations. Oh, it was a really good little nugget. What was it? Um, no, I think that was it. Okay. I, that was a good one. Yeah. That one was there, worth two. There was yeah. something, but it's gone now. Plus, it's good dating advice. So for all of our, our single listeners. Oh, yeah. If you're not feeling the spark. <laughs> Hesitation is a no, ladies. Um, okay. So we're in this insane space. Um, you're able to come in here and be creative. And I hear from people all day long, whether it's looking for a co-working space or whatever. They're like, I just... I the life is sucked out of me at home, I, I, but they don't have a light lab to mm -hmm. go to. First of all, how long did it take you to get to this place? You know, people have heard a little bit of your history, but when you look at that, you're like, well, this didn't happen the year I became a blogger. Yeah. Um, so how long did it take to... Yeah, I mean, from year early 2000... 2008, uh, eight, and here okay. we are in 2017, yeah. so almost 10 years. So just a reality check on yeah. how long it took and, before you could have this. I'll, I'll add that in terms of my personal finances, this is the first year ever that I'm not living month to month. Yeah, that's good. That's good to know for those of us who really look at you and say, well, she's one of the ones that's killing it. She's one of the ones that has succeeded. And you've mentioned the clutter. You've mentioned the bubble. You've mentioned how long is this going to last? I think you've been very honest and open about what is this that you're, you know, going in with eyes wide open and then understanding what's the intention behind it. Sure. If it's again, to pursue a passion or to share something with the 10 people that may be listening, then go for it. But if it's, I want to be part of what this 10 year wave has been about, maybe you should rethink, you know, yeah. find another platform. Just go work as a social media manager. There you go. There you go. So, 
Okay, so in this space, any advice as somebody who comes from an interiors background, how do we inspire ourselves in our small home office? How do we live in that empty apartment for six months and say, what's the, what do I need in here that gives me joy or kind of gives me that little bit of juice I need to keep totally. going? Um, well, the answer to that question is one of my least favorites, and that is patience. I'm uh. not, I know, guys. So many good nuggets, but sad trombone. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Good things take time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. Uh, I needed those six months in an empty apartment to get to the point where I could write a book inspired by it. You know, the book wouldn't have happened if I didn't sit crying on my bathroom floor for six months. Um, when it comes to interiors, taking the time to get to know yourself and what you need so that you're not just choosing the latest trend and you're not just choosing what you think looks cool, but getting to that point where you trust yourself on what feels right for you. Sure. And I think that's a that's flow, that's understanding the physical space that you're in totally. and what it needs to. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a living, breathing thing yeah. in and of itself. And, and recognizing that an interior like life is a journey and it's never going to be complete because your needs change, life changes, etc. Um, and so with all that wisdom, Miss Ann Sage... Um, what is it that you wished you would have known as a content creator or you would have done differently? Well, I won't say I would have done anything. No, I, I, there are things that I would have done differently. I would have spoken up for myself sooner. Better. I would have used my voice. On Um, the blog? Well, this piece about self-promotion. Okay. And... When I was in my 20s, I'm still not great at self-promotion, but I was really rubbish at it when I was in my 20s and put myself in situations where I wasn't using my voice and then I was resenting people because of the result of the situation when really the personal responsibility was as much on me as it was on others. And so what I would do differently... And again, you can't change the yeah. past, but just faking the confidence that maybe I didn't have a little better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you need to find that voice in order to use that Absolutely. voice in fairness. Mm-hmm. Um, anything you would have done in terms of shifting from the blog or doing something differently with any of the platforms, anything that our listener could hear and go, okay, that's a great takeaway for me. Yeah, I would have, I would have, um, just on a very practical level, learned to take better photos sooner. Oh, wow. You know, I've been toying around with a camera for almost 10 years, but it's only in the last two that I've really figured out how to use it properly. And I'm by no means, I do not consider myself a professional photographer. Um, but I think I was scared to get to know my camera really well. And I've gotten to a point now where a camera is just like 
any other piece of technical equipment. And it's okay to need lessons and it's okay to need practice and it's okay to take time to learn my way around it. Um, I felt like I had to be good right away and I wasn't. And so I didn't even try. And I can only imagine that it also then meant leaning on other people to do that with you, which um, meant everything, you know, from the literal, like, conflict of schedules to just it's holding you back from telling a story yeah. the way you want to tell it totally. as somebody who is creating content. Right. And, and indeed it also opened a lot of really exciting doors because I've had the privilege of working with yeah. some of the literally the best photographers in the world. I mean like internationally renowned. And so I wouldn't have wanted not to do those things, but I think that the confidence that knowing my way around my camera has given yeah. me. That's what's really been transformative. And the knowledge that if I'm in a pinch and I need to shoot something, I need to get something up, I can. Okay, I have a question that's, I've never asked this question, but because you've talked about the bubble bursting mm. and you've talked about your memoir, I'm fast forwarding to Anne, the literary memoirist, okay. um, who isn't living in this blog blogosphere, if you will. Um, the the landscapes changed. Readers aren't necessarily there in the same way. What is the thing as a what what is the thing that you will continue to do because it's a guilty pleasure that this content creation career has given you or afforded you? What will you still do no matter who's paying attention? Well, I definitely think there's real pleasure in creating an opulent cheese board. I love it. Okay, where is that now, by the way? Sorry. Oh, next time. It's hot in here. <laughs> it is. It, Actually, it, cheese is not. Cheese would right. not be You're good right, right yeah. now. Um, no, I, I think that I will always love making, making things pretty for pretty's sake. And that's something that has been in me since I was a little kid doing it with my mom. I think, oh God, I think I'm going to start to cry. Uh. Like life can be so, so hard. Mm. And the world is a scary place. But what we have control over is how we see it. And if we can find opportunities to create beauty in our life and share them with others, then that's what makes it all worth it. Okay, that's the biggest mic drop ever. <laughs> Thanks, Anne. Thank you. Um, before I let you go on that very somber note, which is so profound, and thank you for that, um, it actually brings us back to create content because you're passionate, even though you're a part of the bubble that is that is in existence and can make money. It's so obvious that this is born of your own curiosity and your own passion. And thank you for beautifying the world and sharing it with us. But I'm not letting you off the hook yet. Okay. We ask these really silly <gasps> six questions so that our audience gets to know you sort of apart from your career. So just really quickly, okay. I'm going to ask. I and love you it. Just kind of talk, whatever comes to mind. Okay. So nine to five or flex schedule. What do you prefer? Got to be flex. Yeah. I don't, who answers nine to five? Have we ever have, we have, okay. I love those people who answer nine to five. Um, vacation, beach or mountains? Beach. Not even kind of mountains? 
That was so like... Okay, so backstory on that. (laughs) My mom and dad are botany professors. Uh So we took a lot of quote-unquote vacations to the mountains that was really just them doing field research. Yeah, we get it. Okay, I love you, mom. We get it. Beach, beach. Um, Work from home or office? You know, I was so sure I would be here at the studio every day working, and I'm still at home most days. Yeah. Is that... Do you think it's just because it's easy to roll out of bed and get going, or do you think it's like, depending on the day, you talked about blocking blocking your days for certain tasks. Is it dependent on what it is you're doing? Yeah. I think it's that I'm a homebody. Yeah. And I just like being in my space that is only mine. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, we do also rent the studio out to people. But even on days when it's empty, I'm at home. And and that's also kind of a functional thing because a lot of my props are there. And if I'm taking photos of my house for the blog, obviously it needs to be at my house. Which is beautiful, by the way. Everyone should check out ansage.com. And we'll, of course, have all your handles and everything. But you can see all of that beauty on your blog and in your Instagram. Um, Okay, back to the quick six. Um, Would you prefer working alone or with a team? It depends on the task. Historically, I prefer working alone, but it has been pointed out to me that I'm something of a lone wolf and it bites me in the ass. Yeah. So to really grow and do something exciting and different, I would push myself into the discomfort of being in a team. And I can imagine that the, I mean, you have worked on teams and you talked about that in your earlier career story, but that you bring so much. So I can imagine that being fulfilling and that a lot of you is being exhausted in that space, whether you prefer all the other things (laughs) that come with it or not. Um, Okay. Most difficult question, Thai or Mexican food? Mexican. Oh, not even My husband is Mexican. Okay. Well, then you have to answer that way. I'm I'm contractually obliged. Yeah. And you're newly married, so I think that's appropriate. But always Mexican. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. Well, you found each other. We did. Was meant to be. And then we've named the brand Liberty. We've named this particular podcast, which we've launched the brand with Liberty Sessions. And it's because our hope is through women pursuing their own ventures, something they're curious about, something they're passionate about, that they will find liberation and they will feel heard and understood and and that voice is something they can put out into the world. What does it mean for you to be liberated? To me, liberated means trusting myself. Hmm. It means owning my voice even when it's scary. And it means showing up with conscious responsibility to the situations I create and the people that surround me. Wow. That's a three-parter. I always do things in threes. Do you? Okay. Yeah, it's actually, it's as a writer, it... It is challenging because my paragraphs will just be like sets of three, sets of three, parallel structure, sets of three. Do you design that way? Are you, uh, are you balanced? I'm pretty balanced. Okay. Yeah. I have to go in and shake it up again because my instinct says three. Okay. But you don't always need three. Well, that, those were a good three. We're going to hang on to those. And thanks for this time. It was great Thank to you, be Nada. with you. This was an honor. That was great. See you guys later. Bye. 
Liberty Sessions is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcast, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Liberty Sessions on Apple Podcast. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping you to launch and grow your own ventures. You can also find us every day on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Liberty For Her. And please leave a comment using the hashtag Liberty Sessions. We want to hear your thoughts, suggestions, and brilliant ideas. Liberty Sessions is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Windham and music by Jordan Flower.